what if Amazon ran the government? No, not the legislature, although it's hard to imagine they would do much worse. I'm talking about the bureaucracy, the services, things where logistics, operations, and efficiency make all the difference. Things Amazon has nearly perfected. Hell, even the people who run the drive through at Chick-fil-A could probably do a better job of snow removal than the city of Pittsburgh. Innovation gets harder the older, larger, and more complex an organization becomes. Government agencies that have been around and expanding for hundreds of years are nearly impossible to evolve. Doesn't help that modernizing government services seldom grabs big headlines. I doubt we'll see a presidential candidate next year boasting of their plan to make passport renewals easier, even though everyone, on both sides of the aisle, would heartily support it. Instead, politicians focus on the biggest problems, as I suppose they should, even though it could take years, if ever, before solutions are felt by the average American. It's easy to vilify government when we can't point to tangible things it's done to make our lives better. And so we're stuck in a cycle of growing government distrust, disapproval, and dysfunction we can't seem to break particularly when the smartest and most talented people in our country find public service less and less appealing. I had the chance to talk about this problem with Diego Piacentini. Born in Italy, Diego was one of the earliest executives at, you guessed it, Amazon. He climbed the ranks there for over 16 years before leaving, with Jeff Bezos' personal blessing, to bring Amazon's principles of innovation and customer obsession to the Italian government. Now back in the private sector as an investor, board member, and advisor, Diego has a diverse, global perspective on how governments can tackle problems, attract the brightest talent, and directly impact the people they serve. Diego and I also talked about what makes America most unique on the world stage, how adventurous he's become at trying new foods, and whether or not he could jumpstart a Ferrari if he had to. So take a few moments to think about fixable problems for a change and listen to a fascinating conversation with Diego Piacentini and me, the dumbest guy in the room. Diego, thanks for being here. Where do we find you this morning? Good morning, John. You find me in uh, Bellevue on the other side of the lake, on the east side of the lake from uh, Seattle. And it's uh, obviously a rainy day. We have very Seattle-like weather here in Pittsburgh, in fact. So I, I was just out there a couple of weeks ago in Bellevue. It was a blizzard when I left my hotel in the morning. And by the time I got to the airport, there wasn't a single drop of participation coming out of the sky. You guys get some wild weather there. Great to have you here. So many sort of fun topics I want to cover that I really don't touch on a lot of this stuff with our other guests, just because your your perspective's really unique. But we could spend an hour going down the list of all of the companies and boards and investments and activities you're involved in. It's just, it's so much. I don't know how you balance it all. But what is a day or a week in, in your life like right now? Clearly, the big change has been when I stopped doing my full-time job with Amazon moved to do the activity with the Italian government, came back and decided to not go back to a job where, I mean, I still wanted to work and I still wanted to work a lot and add value, but I decided I was not go back to job into waking up every morning and managing crisis, people around the world and being connected to specific tasks. And I wanted to have a little bit more control of my time. So that was my decision point. The second one was, how do I connect my passions with work and I can keep learning? So, for example, you know, I'm a big believer, we're going to be talking about, I guess, with the fact that we're lacking a lot of uh, objective news. It's really hard, especially for younger people, to separate reality from non-reality, truth from non-truth. And that represents, for example, the fact I'm on the board of The Economist. I mean, I believe The Economist can really represent not the only one, obviously, but one of the several news outlets that can, you know, give an opinion or help understanding and separate truth from non-truth. So that's one example of a, of a board and connecting to, to my passion around that. I'm a big believer in the fact that 20 years from now, there won't be many cars around urban centers. And uh, I'm on a board and helping out the shape the strategy of this micromobility company out of Sweden, which is very present all over Europe. It's not in the US, at least not yet. Again, so that's that's the connection between passion and wanting to learn and giving direct value to some of the activities. Third one is an example. That's going to be the last example I'm on, sharing a startup in the in the UK. By the way, funny enough, in London, I'm a, either on the board of a 140-year-old company, <laughs> the economist of a five-year-old company which is apolitical. 
And Apolitical is a startup that builds education training program at scale for civil servants. I'm a strong believer that long shot, incredibly long shot because it's very complicated, but you got to start by creating a class of civil servants that is competent, passionate, and especially updated with the new topic. I mean, the topics the civil servants had to deal with 20 years ago are only partially the same as another. Many new topics, I mean, urban mobility being one of them, and mass migration from dislocations or from climate changes, different kinds of pollutions, transportation mobility. Those are all topics that, as we all need to learn, I mean, also civil servants need to learn in order to be just not complying with some rules. And that's why Apoliticos is building those uh, training programs. So that's another connection between. So I'm trying to keep going with my passions, connecting them to the work I'm doing. I have, being of Italian origin, grew up in Milan, a bias towards Italian venture firms, which are very well unknown by the rest of the world. I think Italy is one of the most underestimated countries when it comes to a few things that are not just necessarily tourism and fashion or fast cars. There's much more than that. And therefore, I have that bias, and I'm trying to connect those dots too. So I'm working with Italian and European startups in general. So that's the way I balance my time. And there is the NGO world, and we can talk about it later. One. And again, education is one of them, and uh, health is another passion that I try to learn and do something adding value in, into the NGO world. Well, obviously, you're bringing a really strong an experienced perspective to those things from arguably most recently one of the t- probably two or three biggest companies in the world and prior to that one of the two or three biggest companies in the world going from Apple to Amazon and I'm sure working with startups working with government and yeah you were obviously at Amazon pretty early in the, in the game but trying to bring what you've le- you learned in those massive organizations with frankly massive amounts of resources how much of that's applicable to a startup or how do you how do you reframe your knowledge from those experiences to supporting whether it's a startup or a nonprofit or a small government agency how much of it translates that's an excellent question there's not only the obvious answers about you know experience and networking keep those aside i think that the great thing about helping obviously you need to have on the other side so on the side of the startup on the side of the entrepreneur an environment, someone, a person, a set of people that with good IQ and good understanding of how things can evolve, but keeping that aside as a, as a must, you can add value by preempting the issues that complexity. So when growth comes, that CEO will have. So one of the conversations, without mentioning any name, just had recently is with one of the companies that I, I, I spoke about is, okay, what are the principles that will drive the culture, hence the growth, the decision-making of the company. And the CEO thing, yeah, but we don't have time for that now. And that's absolutely the wrong answer. And he understood this is actually, she understood that was the wrong answer because the bigger the company becomes, if you have not defined some basic principles, preemption of situations will be very, very hard. And when complexity comes, and it comes very, very quickly, if you don't have those principles, leadership principles, for example, or decision-making principles, another example, you're always falling behind the curve. You end up maybe not hiring the right people, and you find yourself with uh, having to take care of that at the much later stage, which is going to be much harder. So the beauty, I believe, is to really help the founder to anticipate the issues of complexity by inserting mechanisms that help you to scale. And those mechanisms, they're often not rocket science. And that goes from you know hiring principles, decision-making principle, leadership type principles, things that obviously needs to be very true. That not just shouldn't be just you know those nice slogans on the walls or on the windows of the nice startups. So that's preempting complexity. I would say choose as a short version of my answer. That's a, a really good principle in and of itself. As a lifelong entrepreneur, startup entrepreneur myself, it's impossible to foresee all of the twists and turns that are going to be out there in front of you. And to try to predict them or trying to preemptively prevent future 
individual complexities when you can't see them coming, I think is impossible. You'll spend a lot of time betting on a future that may not play out the way it is. But but you're right. The sooner you establish that framework, the easier it is to manage as you grow. Because trying to drop a new framework on an existing large organization is much, much harder to do. And that's a segue. Well, I don't want to segue yet. But when we start talking about how do we bring the lessons of really successful companies like Amazon, or even the mindset of an agile startup to government, to public service, to civil service. You've got that problem, right? You're coming into governments that are hundreds of years old and bureaucracies that have existed for decades, generations. Changing them is so much more difficult, if not impossible, compared to building them, building them that way from scratch. One thing I know, and I've heard you mention this in other interviews, that was a principle or of not one of your leadership principles, but I know a principle of Jeff Bezos's thinking in your team early on is to focus on the inputs, not the outputs, right? In the early days. Talk about what does that mean? I know what that means, but for the listener, if you're tackling a problem, building a new thing from scratch, again, harder maybe to do retroactively if you've already established a complex system of inputs. But what, what does that mean? And what what can, a say, an entrepreneur or a nonprofit leader or somebody take from that experience as they're building their thing? That's an excellent question because the parallel with the complexity is, is very important. So oftentimes, and let's talk about the private world, the private private companies, especially if you're on a board or if you're an advisory level, so you're not a daily operational manager that sees the situation every day, you're presented in numbers. And uh, and I'm going to give you a real life anecdote. I got the board deck, one of the companies on the board, and uh, I see all the numbers, blah, 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 and says, we have missed revenue targets because of soft demand, which all my board members were looking at us and said, okay, the soft demand. And my point is, my body language was very explicit when I read that. It says, what does soft demand mean? I mean, it's a tautology. You're telling me that you're missing targets because you're missing targets. That's what you're, you're telling me. And the question goes, is, so what are the revenue generators? What are the inputs to that number? And companies are overly focused on, especially larger companies, on forecasts and meeting the forecast when most of the time forecast is a very highly imperfect science versus breaking into the different inputs. And I go, in that case, for example, would be, you know, how many customers have rotated out of the month and why those customers have not bought your product that month and go to a lower level of granularity. And one example is sometimes in companies, you need to invent metrics. And Amazon, at the very beginning, we had a hard time to understand why revenue was going up and down. We built metrics that would allow to say how many times that a customer goes on the detail page of a product, that product is actually in stock for same-day delivery, okay? So you have the number of page views at the top and how many times was the product in stock as the denominator. So that's an input. The higher the number, the higher the probability that the product will be purchased. The lower the number, the lower the probability will be purchased. And you start building inputs, metrics around that. So that's this very specific example. And in Amazon, you would expect a senior leader to know the in-stock metrics. At many companies, the senior leaders not, they have no idea that even this in-stock metrics exist. That's the big difference in example from we're missing revenue because of soft demand. We're missing revenue because our in-stock in Germany of that specific product was lower than usual. And this is why. So this is the two extreme separate on a fully output-based example. I'm missing demand because there's soft demand, pretty much. So I'm missing metrics because there's soft demand. And I am missing revenue. And I give you the details at three level of granularity below. Those are two extremes, right? But that's that's Texas. And then you can translate that into many different approaches. That's why you need to be input generated. At Amazon, the philosophy was, Many companies, you get fired if you miss revenue many times. At Amazon, that was not the case. If you are missing in stock many times and doing it in the wrong way, that's that's the difference. It's much more factual. But there's a lesson there for somebody even starting something from scratch. And I've done this myself, right? We put You put your first investor deck together and you say, I'm going to generate $10 million in revenue by year three. 
And maybe you can say a bit around, well, I'm going to sell X many software licenses at Y price. And that's your that's the extent of your input versus what are the things that are going to drive adoption of my product or or lack of adoption of my product and focus on those things. And and look, I'm certainly guilty looking back at at kind of leapfrogging ahead too far to what the ideal outcome was instead of what were the actual building blocks of that. And that's that's also, I think, a, a very interesting parallel because I want to bring this back to government, public sector, because you had this remarkable jump, 16 plus years at Amazon after a, a long career as well at, at Apple. And then you make this leap into the Italian government, working directly with the prime minister, brought in to support at least ostensibly digital transformation, which is a obviously a pretty broad category as well. What kind of culture shock was that for you? Did you know what you were getting yourself into? Or did you you say, hey, I, I want to apply some of my expertise and and everything to serving, you know, my civic duty. And you jumped in. How prepared were you for that? And, and what surprised you the most about it when you started? My wife told me that I had a midlife crisis. And, and that, you know, there are some people that when they reached the age of 50, what was, was it? So 56 when he did that. So typical midlife crisis. So you either buy a Porsche or a Ferrari or even matter different things. And my midlife crisis is I, I really want to do something for, for my country. Now, it sounds a little bit rhetorical. It sounds a little bit too good to be true. But that, that was the main reason, right? It was a little bit of serendipity. At that time, there was one of the things that it is known for is that we change government a lot. By the way, I'm dual citizen in US and Italian, so I can see both political systems very closely. At that time, there was this prime minister, very young, former mayor of Florence, his name was Matteo Renzi, who actually did represent something really, really new for the country. The way he was presenting himself, he had recently won the European election for Italy with 42% of votes, which is unprecedented for Italy. I mean, one single person, one single party getting 42% of votes. So I thought there was some uh, signal of stability. Because stability is one of the conditions to be helpful. If you keep you know, this, your bosses keep changing every time. The government, in that case, keep changing every time. You're not stable. You, you just don't have the time to make any decisions. So that's number one, necessary. And I'm going to mention a lot of necessary, although all of them not sufficient conditions, was stability. So, wow, Matteo Renzi could be stability. He was very well also liked by the U.S. administration. So lots of conditions. Comes, visit the Silicon Valley to meet the Italian entrepreneurs. The Italian council calls me and said, Matteo would like to have breakfast with you. I fly from Seattle to San Francisco. And he asks, would you like to help me do digital transformation of, he said Italy, by the way, not the government. He said Italy. And what do you mean? And he couldn't go, you know, higher level of granularity that much. If the conversation was always on the abstract. So my, my first answer was, no, that's too, I don't know exactly what you want. What do you mean? And But it was a very cordial conversation. Two months later, he comes back. Fast forward, at the end, I decided, I spoke to obviously my wife, but Jeff Bezos, and uh, he suggested me to use the regret minimization approach, which is what are two or three years from now, if you look back, what decision would you regret to not have taken? At that point, the decision was obviously, I wanted to do something new and I want to try this, almost impossible as a mission. So decided to do it, moved to Rome, and there I start using some Amazon principles mentally. So where are the bottlenecks in this digital transformation? What are the missing pieces? So I ended up defining my job description from this very vague digital transformation of Italy to digital transformation of the public administration and pick four big projects, digital payment, digital identity, a digital interconnected database of citizens' data, an app that integrates with the services, which on its own are four huge projects. But for politicians, there are already two high level of details to understand. So I focused on that. I revisited, corrected, and amended myself the decree that would appoint me as an extraordinary commissioner. So pretty much they went into that level of details to eliminate other bottlenecks. The key part was, sorry, if I'm going to this level of details, just to make you understand or the audience understand how far you need to go to make something really work. 
or at least have a hope of working. And the other point is that I found out that a digital agency or in charge of digital transformation already existed, funny enough. I met with that team, and after one-hour meeting, I decided they were not the solution. They were completely the problem. They were the problem. 80% of the people were lawyers and uh, people that would not understand technology in any case. So can you imagine a digital transformation team with just lawyers? What did they do is laws, obviously, that are totally inapplicable. And I started hiring separate teams. So I, I wrote an article on Medium, and I really appealed to all the Italians that were working in the US, in Europe, and the rest of Italy that wanted to give back to their country. So two years, come, and we'll be going to build those four specific projects. So I was already very specific. You can't say, come and you know build digital transformation to the Italian government. That's a very soft appeal. Are you a database expert and would you like to build the mother of all databases, which is the citizen data for the Italian government? That is a much more appealing. And I did a try. I actually had 3,000 applications, John. 3,000 applications. And I spent a month recruiting in the beginning. And being a special extraordinary commissioner, I could do that going through a very rigorous process, which was my own process, but without going through the normal public administration set of rules, which would take me two years to do anything. So it's breaking all those pieces. Now, what did I accomplish? You say, you, know, you just accomplished building a digital identity in a digital, the app that I mentioned is called EO, has 32 million downloads, is being highly used thanks also to COVID and the fact they integrated the vaccine certificates in it. So we built something specific. Now, most payments in Italy, if you want to pay you know, from penalties to your taxes to whatever, it's digital and it's fully integrated depending on the type of the cities and administration that manage integration. Opposite, for example, I, I had to, to get my U.S. passport renewed, explain my son what a money order is, because they're still accepting their cashier checks or money orders. My son had no idea what a money order is. That's not how I acted. So was I ready for frustration? Absolutely. My medium post was, for someone getting easily frustrated, don't come work for government, because government is bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is frustration. So it's like going to see you know, a horror movie and then complain that you saw a lot of blood. No, you know that before entering the theater that you are going to see blood. So that was my approach. And again, applying the theory of constraints and trying to identify the bottlenecks, we worked on those. But the key part, John, was the sub-segmentations of going from digitize the country and break it to several sub-segments and identify the four or five that I could act upon. That's the way we did it. The problem we have, well, one of a gazillion problems we have here in the US, I'm going to enumerate a couple of them because I want. I think the conversation converges around a handful of them. On one hand, we have a record high institutional distrust in this country, although institutional distrust of democracies across the globe is a problem, but particularly so here. So on one hand, we have this conflict of lower and lower trust in our government, confidence in our government and our leadership. But then you've got this juxtaposition of that with this persistent sense of American exceptionalism. We think we're better and wealthier and you know most things better than the rest of the world. I know I'm overgeneralizing, but there's a large percentage of our country who does not care to look outside our own borders for ideas on how to be a better government or a better society because no one can do it better than we can. Guns is one of those topics, of course, where you know we're the only country that has the certain laws that we have and we're the only country that has the certain outcomes that we have and no one seems to be able to understand why those two things are related. I don't want to go down that path. But you've got this conflict of a country that is both has very low confidence in its government, low trust in its government, but otherwise a tremendous amount of sense of, of exceptionalism. And I'm sure people listening to you talk about what you were able to accomplish in Italy are like envious of, wow, I wish I could pay for my passport digitally and I wish I had all those tools. And you'd think, well, why can't we do that? Because we have all the money in the world in the US and we're so wealthy and we have all of this technology and all of this innovation. I think what you're saying and what I would argue is that a country like Italy probably had a, it's not as much about the resources as it is about solving those input problems that it didn't have as much legacy, deep bureaucracy to solve for, say, that we have here in the US. And so how do you take what you've learned in a country like Italy? And I'm sure you did your own due diligence on what other countries were doing to look for best practices around some of these things. 
What is a country like the U.S. that's so big, so much massive bureaucracy, entrenched systems? What do we learn from an experience like that to just make a small dent in some of the bureaucratic and process problems that we have here? How do you start? Well, keeping in mind that Italy has nothing to teach anybody about bureaucracy, keeping that in mind. Okay. Yes, I did my homework. I mean, several months before starting officially the job, I actually visited with the U.S. Uh, digital service at the White House. This was uh, 2006, early 2016. It's important to collocate in time because, you know, many things changed after that. I met with the people at the U.K. digital service. I even met with the Minister of Technology of Estonia. As I mentioned Estonia because together with Singapore is knowingly the most digitized government in the world. Very small. Much less complex. In fact, it's, you can't just say, you know, we'd like to be Estonia. We can't be Estonia from that point. It's a few hundred thousand people nation. And one of the things I learned from U.S. Digital Service was actually they started working on one specific problem, which from a PR standpoint, nobody knows about it, was fixing the U.S. Veteran Affairs Department, which was huge millions of people that were mistreated in terms of, you know, delayed payments. So they worked on that. And they worked on that for three or four years. And they actually did achieve some results. Now, it's not a known fact. It's like you probably never heard about it. But if that Department of Veteran Affairs, at least as of I go back 2018, I don't know what happened since then, was for me an example of how to break the paradigm, digitize the country or digitize the government and focus on those things that need or you could add input. So I learned that. Went back to Italy and said, what are the three or four things that and I found out that that's the other part. There was most of the times there is already something happening. But when a new government comes in, a new administration comes in, there is this tendency in the US, like in other countries, including Italy, to throw away everything the previous government has done and start from scratch, which is stupid. It's really stupid. You instead of doing the work is what are the things that actually we could continue doing it because there was a good idea and work on it. And that's the approach that you should have. And then you have, don't forget, government is, I'm going to oversimplify, but it's two things, right? It's the institutions, the politicians, and then is the execution machine, the people that actually make things happen, the public servants, the public servant leaders. And oftentimes, and I notice that is being true in most governments, I, I was part of G7, G20, all those multinational organizations, politicians have no idea what the public servant machine does. They give for granted that it exists and it works. Yes, it exists. <laughs> no, most of the time it doesn't work. But that thing's just, they're two separate things, right? Politicians have a cycle. They generate policies or bills or whatever. And the... I almost don't care whether they're well executed or not, because they know that they have only a couple of years left. But that execution—that's a paradigm that you don't solve, John. I mean, honestly, you don't. But the execution is what matters to when government actually touches the lives of people. So you mentioned the Veterans Administration example. To the veterans that that solved problems for, that was good government at work, right? Arguably, one of the biggest problems we have here or anywhere is that the problems that are probably most solvable and would most directly impact in some positive way the customers of the federal government, right, the citizens of this country, are not the things that grab headlines. And they're not the things that you run on with platitudes in a you campaign. Don't get, you don't get reelected with those things. Correct. But it's ironic, right? Because on one hand, we say we distrust our, or we have no faith and or a distrust in our government. Partly it's because we don't trust the people and there's, you know, all kinds of scandals and so on and so forth. I don't trust the politicians, but I also don't feel like government has done anything positive in my life to justify all the tax dollars I pay and all the political nonsense I have to listen to. But it's just, it's ironic, right? Because the things that actually would serve me best as a customer of the U.S. government are the things that don't get any prioritization because they don't grab headlines. And I don't know, I don't know if there's a way to break that cycle. The real life government, keep you know, taxes apart, happens at the local level. I was witnessing this conversation between the mayor of Milan and the mayor of Rome. 
if you don't have enough background, I'm going to oversimplify. By the way, I'm totally biased. I'm from Milan. So Milan, everything works or most things work. Rome, nothing works by definition. It's really... And Milan, by the way, is an example of a city that, as Zolu said, different governments, center-left, center-right, center-left, center-right, but they all continue the work done previously, infrastructure. Rome didn't happen that way. And this mayor of Milan kept telling this new mayor of Rome, different party, young person, but he was there at heart saying, hey, I forget, citizens care about four things. And that's where we're measured on. Crime and security, schools, education, transportation, and uh, believe it or not, garbage management, trash management. Those are the four things. I say that because in Rome, trash management is a huge problem. Well, and if they were in Pittsburgh, I would just add one, which would be snow removal. That would probably okay, be but that's probably it's a subset five. of the <laughs> subset of yeah, that. Yeah. And those are the four things. And then you have to go up the chain of those four things because the other complexity of government that is the, one of the biggest bottlenecks is the procurement system. I know maybe we're getting into boring details, John, but that's how you acquire resources, either labor or intellectual capital skills, but how things get done. Because most governments, they don't do their own things. They subcontract. And the rules of procurement are often the killer of execution. Appeal, counter-appeal. It's interesting that I was once at uh, at a conference with Jeff Bezos was speaking about Blue Origin versus NASA. And there was one guy that asked him, so if you have to say, what is the biggest difference between NASA and Blue Origin? He did say procurement. If there is a new technology and there is something that I'm very thinking, betting on, I'm going to buy it tomorrow if I have the money. And government has the money. By the way, I want to kill another myth. It's never money the biggest problem for governments. Governments has way more money than a lot of companies do. So that's not not an excuse. By the time that NASA gets that new technology that I'm buying in a week, it's probably going to take nine months at best. So procurement, and that you can apply that to you know, hiring police people, to managing the trash management company, designing all the contracts that would attract new people. So that is also the biggest. So if you're focused on the metropolitan level, so the urban level to fix those problems, procurement is one of the problems that you want to work on and simplifying the rules of procurement. And use the word boring. And maybe they are, but maybe that's the point, right? Is that they're not exciting, but they're solving. But, but that's what will actually make an impact on people's lives is solving the boring problems. I'll draw the the correlation to when I see startups that that come and pitch me or want me to you know help them with their ideas. Some of the best businesses I've seen over the last 15, 20 years solved pretty boring commercial problems, you know, maybe a an inefficiency in insurance or an inefficiency in the way you buy cars, right? Those aren't big sexy things. And you know, and we earlier in the season, a couple episodes ago, I had Chris Cuomo on, and we talked about how we are all being distracted. And a lot of this is driven by the news media. We're all being distracted by these big sort of kind of sexy headline grabbing sorts of things that are considered to be problems, right? It might even be a balloon flying across the country, or these are eye-catching stories but they're not making an impact on anyone's life. The things that actually are making an impact on people's lives are more localized. And by virtue of being localized, they're not being covered on the national cable broadcast you know, networks. And so we don't talk about them as much around the water cooler. Yeah, I mean, think, think about that. I need to solve the garbage problem of that specific place, apply the theory of constraints, look at all the bottlenecks. I'm going to see the bottleneck is procurement. What are you going to turn? Dear future, dear future people, vote for me because I'm going to fix the procurement. That doesn't work. But that's that's exactly what you need to do. Again, we're oversimplifying here, John. But I don't. I mean, I don't know if we are. I mean, it's the mindset is not oversimplifying. The mindset is, is the mindset is, is the right. It is a right. And given that we're not going to change a world where politicians now are doing everything they can to grab social media likes and attention because that's how they raise money and that's how they get reelected, we're not going to solve that problem. But this notion of, and this goes back to Amazon, two things I think of when I think of Amazon. One is customer-centric obsession, 100%. And two is operational excellence and efficiency. When I think at the the core of what made Amazon great, 
It's those two things. And our government is the exact opposite of those two things. It is neither operationally efficient or excellent, and it is it is arguably the least customer-centric organization I can imagine. It is not. It's about the people in power. It's about maintaining the status quo. It is not about it is not about ultimately helping the end citizen. And we're told that they're helping us. And when good things happen, the economy goes up, they take credit for it. When the economy goes down, they blame someone else for it. When, when in reality, we know that federal government has very little impact whatsoever on what happens to the government, or excuse me, to the economy. But how do then, so our goal is to somehow rebuild trust. And again, we're not going to rebuild trust just by the ethics of people who hold office, but we're going to be re- rebuild trust by a government that delivers value for people. And your point, I think, which I agree with completely, is that's going to have to happen from the bottom up, which is local first, right? And so if you were elected president tomorrow, president of the United States. I can't. I'm not born in this country. All right. Well, let's just say hypothetically. (laughs) Good point. Good point. What would you do first? Shift more funding to local governments? Would you decentralize things? What, What would you tackle first? or at least think about yeah. first? The big abstract concepts like centralization versus decentralization are fake problems. They're false problems because in the abstract, they mean absolutely nothing. So you want to get into that level of details that say, I want to move the decision level of this specific program to the closest point of failure, which could be the city, but things like you know, federal taxes, I want to keep it this way. But you can't say centralized versus decentralized. You really need to get into those are the 100 things that we need to do. And I'm going to give you 100 specific answer for all those 100 things you need to do. So there's not one thing. It's like, I also remember the Ministry of Economic Development in Italy was one of the few ones that really had a lot of good judgment. We should stop talking about reforms. Every government wants to bring a new reform for doing something. But the issue is not the reform on its own most of the times, but it's the execution of what already exists. That's what I would do. I would really is just go into the specificity of the biggest issues, break them at the possible smallest level, and start working on it. I don't know. It's like a boring... You wouldn't get elected on that platform. No, I wouldn't. But in fact, you didn't ask me. You right. told me of course not. Exactly. That's why I, I asked the question say. explicitly that way. Right. That's the tackling the biggest thing. But again... Want to tackle transportation, for example? You know, it's a huge debate. Transportation, both here and this country. Oh, by the way, when you said people do not do not trust government anymore, I went to check the data and the number. And indeed, you're right. At the OECD level, if you exclude the US, trust and distrust is pretty much the same. 41%, 41%. The rest is neutral. In the US, is only 20%. So the outlier in that OECD numbers was actually the U.S. So you were totally right on that one. So you would say transportation. It has to do with mobility, traffic, how goods and people move around, how CO2 get produced. I mean, transportation is a huge point. And again, don't forget, a lot of the fixes are infrastructural. If you didn't start making those 20 years ago, you've got to start to 20 years now. And the U.S. has totally failed compared to Europe, most of it in building infrastructure. So transportation and just focus, you know, hire the best people possible in transportation, but not as advisor, as doers, as like really helping the larger cities on uh, develop policies, how to build procurement rules for that specific infrastructural transportation problem to fix. So fortunately, I'm going to be, I'm an awful politician that will never be elected. You might get reelected if you pulled some of that off. Yes. There's just a lesson here, and for a listener of this podcast or anyone paying attention, we we yell and scream so much about these big, lofty political issues all the time when if we all just yelled a little bit more about some of the things that I want it to be easier to get a passport. I want it to get it to be easier to pay my taxes. I want to have the snow removed from my roads more efficiently. However, you know, we we just get distracted from the things that government can actually do to make our lives better because it, you know, sells more ads on cable news to talk about the really big things that no one can fix or at least we're we're generations away from from being able to fix 
One last problem, and I don't know what the solution to this is, but it goes back to your when you were looking at those 3,000 job applications. We've got, and I don't know how different this problem is in the US compared to other places, but if I think about if we were to Amazon, Amazonize the US federal government and bring in that customer centricity and those operational efficiency, one huge advantage that a company like Amazon or Apple or others have is the ability to pay really talented people to come into the organization and solve those problems. How do we attract people into civil service when it's hard to be competitive on the on a wage basis? You know you're walking into an institution that a lot of people in the world distrust in the country distrust. You know you're walking into a tremendous system of bureaucracy that's going to be hard to change. How do we get talented people to work in government, let alone run for office? I don't know why anybody would want to do that today, but how do we get talented people to, to solve these problems? I'm going to give you an imperfect answer, but it's the most practical answer I can give you, which is if you had asked me, come and work for the Italian government for the rest of your life. My answer would have been cut. No, I'm not going to do that. But as I believe I mentioned at the beginning, if I am a leader, it has to start from the very top. It started with Matteo Renzi, the prime minister. It has to start with the highest possible person who can drive change. If it starts from the middle, it's stuck. It doesn't happen. And you would say, I want to build processes first that would make some external talent productive in two or three years. At that point, we say, hey, John, would you come for three years to fix this specific problem in the city of Pittsburgh? And those are the tools I'm giving you. You're not going to ask me how much you're going to pay me. So my point is, is building programs and processes that would allow a person like you or other people that really want to, I mean, there's a lot of mission-driven people in this world. We would say, yeah, I'm going to come and work for three years and run this specific transportation department program. And obviously, you need to make that not as an occasional one-off activity, but you need to make it as institutionalized as a program. Then you could also create education program that would say, you know, before you start working in government, here's a one-week program that tells you everything about working in government. So that's why I mean building sets of processes, right? Someone in charge that says, this is the induction program. This is the first two months. This is the next two years. Those are the people you can hire. This is your budget. In that way, if you systematize it, I think you can attract hundreds of talented people at the right level. There are, by the way, two cycles of your life, which is one is the very beginning and one is the very end. Well, if we could get more Diegos to take their... 30, 40 years of experience and then jump into government and bring that expertise. That's one. Yeah, but I also needed the great software developers that just came out of college. So right. those are two also sets of it. Well, you've got me thinking out loud here about we do that with military enlistment, where you're agreeing to a finite period of time initially. And in return, there are you might have advantages for paying for your education down the road. Other so I could see I have to think through what the unintended consequences of that and the costs. But if we approach the rest of civil service in some some of the same ways we approach, yeah, and, and I would service. start with one. I mean, start right. with one program, one department, yeah. one city. Yep. Well, that's how you do it. That's that's well, the well, big well, takeaway. Well, I'm going to give you a small thing. The city of Milan. One of the things that, for example, they did. You know, the biggest issue is. Yeah, but the, old, the elderly people can't use the iPad to do all their applications online, you know, that usual excuse. It's funny enough, they had recruited young graduate students that would stand with an iPad in the city hall in the line together with all the people that are waiting to get their certificate done or whatever. And they were explaining to them how they could have done it with an iPad. Again, this is an incredibly small thing, John. Yeah. Just This is the example of Many, many micro programs that need to happen. But the, the point is that it's not one reform, it's not one thing. It's a lot of operationally focused, smart ideas that can be implemented. Well, if we had a magic wand, that's what we would do is get people to understand, get voters to understand in particular that solving these small, boring problems is way better for their lives than than just talking about big ones we can't solve. Right. And instead of just pointing fingers and blaming the people who who last tried to solve them. Well, Diego, great stuff. Awesome food for thought. I don't know how practical it is to say 
take the lessons of an Amazon and bring it to government. But if we can just get a few people to think this way, maybe we start to make a little bit of progress. Funny enough, I did have the six-pager approach. So my team was writing six-page document for all the programs we had to work on. Well, for those of you who don't know this, Amazon, one of the many things it's famous for is a, a memo style, an internal memo style that pretty much every new idea is presented that way, right? You said six six page memo. We have adopted a little bit of that here. In fact, at Civic Science. It's a great best practice. So you brought it to government. We should be doing more of that as well. Just lots of lessons that can be taught from huge, successful private sector companies that government would, would be better to learn from. All right, we're going to wrap it up with some poll questions, as you know. And you did ask me to avoid anything about American sports and so on, which of course I would do. I had your uh, your friend and our, our mutual friend Jeff Wilkie on season or two ago, and we talked all Steelers because we're both from Pittsburgh, and I knew that was an easy one. So, all right, number one, how adventurous are you with trying new foods? Very adventurous. I've been to China, India, lots of places where I tried everything. I'm with you. I have, there are a couple things I regret having tried. But only 17% of Americans identify as, quote, very adventurous. I would bet for sure you would see higher numbers outside of the U.S. 49%, so roughly half, say somewhat adventurous. But 32%, it's almost two to one, people who say they're not adventurous versus very adventurous, which I think is a, you're missing out in life if you're not trying new foods. I'm a big believer in it. Do you typically engage in adventurous activities like snorkeling, ziplining, or kayaking while you travel? Or are you more of an R&R kind of traveler? I do engage in uh, semi-adventurous activities. I mean, kayaking is obviously one, and parachuting is something I wouldn't do. Right. <laughs> so 16% yes. of people say they do, 21% say no no uh, sometimes, and 60% say they do not. I'm kind of, I think I'm in the do not. I mean, I feel like my day-to-day life is, quote, adventurous enough. When I'm vacationing or traveling, it tends to be much more, you know, put my feet up and have a drink beside me and a book on my lap maybe. No, I guess I'm in the 20% that it says sometimes. Sometimes you do. Yeah, I guess. It, yes. It's playing golf. That's not really adventurous. I mean, I'll definitely. Do it that. is absolutely not adventurous. It's not absolutely not adventurous. How confident are you in your ability to jumpstart a car? From zero to 10, I would say three. Interesting. I had to do it a few times. So I've gotten, unfortunately, I've gotten, I've gotten good at it by necessity. And the point is that I have a Tesla. So yes, yes. I have no idea if you'd have to jumpstart a Tesla at all. So well, you were talking about how it's sort of in Italy, it, it's the preponderance of fast cars people think about. I, I don't know how often people are sort of roadside jumping their Ferraris. How confident are you in your ability to jumpstart a car? I'm going to say very confident. 63, almost two thirds of respondents say they're very confident, which just means they've had to do it before. Good. You're not taught that in school. That's something you have to learn the hard way, unfortunately. Would you say you're more comparably or less reactive to caffeine than other people? I'm less reactive to caffeine than other people. Do you drink coffee, espresso daily? I do several times. Yeah. I've noticed that even if I don't do it during the weekend, I'm okay. I don't have headaches or anything. So I would say I'm very little correct. I love coffee, but I'm not addicted to it. Although I do. Lucky you. Lucky you. I don't know if I'm addicted to it, but I certainly notice if I don't have it. I, I I have a real tough time getting out of the starting blocks in the morning without it. No, I have it every time. But again, there are Saturdays and Sundays I try not to have it, and I don't have a specific negative impact on my. My wife and I joke about when we're at hotels. When I before I have to go downstairs to get her a coffee from the coffee shop, I have to make a cup of coffee in the hotel room first to be able to go downstairs to get a cup of coffee from the from the lobby. Although I am somewhat reactive to it. I can't drink coffee afternoon-ish. If I drink it, can you drink coffee after dinner and have no problem sleeping? I do rarely. And those rare times I do it, I have no problem sleeping. You're so lucky. I'm not. I've got to, I've, I've got to cut it out right after lunchtime or I'm, I definitely notice it that night. So 40% of people say they think they're less reactive to caffeine than other people. 13% say they're, so they're, say they're more reactive. So I'm in the reactive both in good ways and bad. It definitely... Gets my brain working, gets my day off to a good start, and it's also can affect me if I do it too late in the day. Well, growing up in Italy, you're probably spoiled on coffee too, right? Although now you're in Seattle, so you've kind of pretty much been in two of the world's greatest places in the world for coffee. Yeah, but there's still a difference. Pick one. Between, oh, two differences. One frustrates the heck out of me. 
you go to a coffee, we call it bar in Italy, right? It's a coffee place. You get an espresso, you get a cappuccino, you go in and you are out in max three minutes. Here you stand in a 10 minute line. The person that makes the cappuccino takes like seven minutes to make a cappuccino. They only take 30 seconds. They do all those waiting and everything. And that is like, oh my God, that's number one. The waiting time for a coffee makes you feel you don't want to have coffee anymore. And number two, the sizes. The sizes are huge. They're two, I mean, like if they're asking you, do you want an eight ounce cappuccino, 12 ounce cappuccino, 24 ounce cappuccino? What else does a 24 ounce cappuccino even exist? Cappuccino is just a little bit of an espresso with a little milk on it. So that that's why not- I always order a macchiato because here pretty much macchiato is a cappuccino size in Italy. That's pretty much what it is. That is definitely a stereotype of America that is very true, which is our insistence on supersizing everything. But yeah, you've been graced with living in places with fantastic coffee. Putting aside sort of the ritual and the sizes and the, but you, the coffee itself in Seattle is fabulous. So I'm I'm jealous about that. First, thanks for joining me today. Second, thanks for using and taking all that you've learned and the tremendous success that you've had an experience that you've gained and doing good with it in a new sort of chapter of your career, taking it to to government to bring some of that wisdom to the nation of Italy and and now in some ways through different NGOs here in the US and globally doing that same thing. I wish more people took that next stage in their career to give back in that way. It's not about sort of just writing a check and donating. It's about kind of bringing your wisdom and, and your experience to those things. So so thank you so much for doing that. And then just for giving, giving me and the audience today some food for thought about how do we think differently? We're not going to rebuild trust in government in a broad brush, broad stroke way. We're not going to fix government in a broad stroke way. We have to have the discipline and the patience to solve the boring problems first. If we solved a bunch of boring problems, all of a sudden we'd start to see that 20% distrust number start to climb, or 20% trust number climb to 1%, to 2%, to 3%. Whereas I think a politician's inclined to want to figure out how the leapfrog gets straight to 60, 70% overnight, and it's just never going to happen that way. So thanks for giving us that food for thought. I've appreciated your friendship and support and, and the advice that you've, mentoring and advice that you've given me about our business. Thanks for spending the time with all of us today. And I'd love to have you back sometime. Maybe we'll maybe we'll see some Super of these exciting. government problems. Yeah, there, there are going to be more more topics to touch around that. But yep, that was fun. And uh, thanks for not asking questions on American football and baseball. No problem. I got enough other people I can banter on that stuff with. So, But, but you could have asked questions on soccer. Well, I guess I suppose I could have. I know a, f- a decent amount about it, I suppose. But yeah, we covered some other topics today. And well, I couldn't ask you about last year's World Cup. No, that would be embarrassing for me. Yes. <laughs> Not to rub, rub any salt in the wounds, but all right, Diego, thank you again. I really appreciate it. And I hope to see you soon. Enjoy Seattle.